Would you uh, open your Bible or turn your device to Genesis 1? We're going to be looking at chapters 1 through 3 this morning in very rapid fashion once we get there. So have your Bibles open there to Genesis 1 through 3. Eventually, uh, we're going to get to 15 things that we can glean about the role of men and women from Genesis 1 through 3. Once we get to that, don't worry about trying to write down what those 15 things are. I'll post on our church blog uh, later today, and you can access that at olympiabp.net. The best time to address controversial issues is when it's not a controversy. Uh, that Really, that's when the teaching, I think, uh, can get... Uh, grow in our hearts and so on, and I'm very thankful that generally speaking, in our church, uh, the role of men and women in ministry in the visible church as represented in the local church is not a big deal, it's not a controversy to us, we tend to generally agree what those roles are, yet the evangelical world is steaming with controversies regarding the role of men and women in the ministry of the local church. And that's what we're going to be looking then for the next few weeks. Nick and I will be leading this series. We're going to somewhat alternate between Sundays. Sometimes he's going to teach two in a row, and sometimes I'll teach two in a row. We're going to take a break on July 4th, and we will, on that Sunday School Hour, talk about the heritage of growing a country that had, was founded on Christian principles. So that's going to be the Sunday School for July 4th. But in this series that we're starting today, uh, it's going to be about, and I'm going to read here uh, a complicated way of explaining what this series is about, because the more I complicate, the more job security I have to explain the things that I've complicated. Uh, this series is about the divinely designed complementary, complementarity of men and women as it applies to life in general, but especially to ministry in the church. We're going to use terms such as complementarity, which is not a common term that we, or com- and then we're going to use the term comp- uh, complementarian, complement, to describe the way that God means for men and women to work together, to complement each other. God made men and women to complement each other, not to compete with one another, not to do the same as each other, but He gave them roles so that they can complement one another in the ministry of the church, but in in life in general as well. Uh, There are God-given different uh, functions for men and for women, and that have nothing to do with worth. A function does not establish worth. And these functions are essential for the well-being of society, of family, and of the church. So we're going to be considering these things, especially as it relates to the church, And we're going to be using a book titled Men and Women in the Church, a Short Biblical Practical Introduction. And that's written by Kevin D. Young. Uh, It's going to be our guide. We're not going to be limited to it, but it's going to be our guide as we divided the subjects and so on. And uh, Dr. D. Young is a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, in in, uh, somewhere in North Carolina. All right. So here we go. Let's begin by talking about the way things are and the way that things were designed to be. 
Let me start by asking a question. Is there any one aspect of human life that has affected every other aspect of human life more than being male or female? Uh, the answer is going to be no to uh, this one. And yet, how often do we stop to think that it didn't have to be this way? God did not have to create the world and humanity the way he did. God could have propagated the human race in some other way besides the, the differentiated pair of male and female. He could done, we could uh, multiply like worms do. You know how worms multiply? Yeah, you chop them in half, they have two worms now. Uh, you know, so that's how uh, God could have designed us that way. So this idea that we take from granted of maleness and femaleness, we just think that's how things are supposed to be, and, and it is. But it's not by necessity, because God could have done things differently. He could have made Adam sufficient without an Eve, or He could have made Eve sufficient without an Adam. But God decided to make not one man or one woman, or a group of men or a group of women. He decided to make a man and a woman. And that was by design, not by necessity. Did you understand what I'm saying here? That's by design, not by necessity. That God is not limited to, limited to, the, to, to what we, we have today. He's a, an infinite God with infinite wisdom. So he could have done things any other way. Are we with me so far? But because he's a perfect God, whatever he does is the best way, the perfect way of doing it. So when he created the world to function in terms of maleness and femaleness, that was the perfect design for creation. So the one feature of human existence that shapes life as much or more than any other, our biological sex, was God's choice, not just something that just happened by necessity. And this whole wonderful, beautiful, complicated business of a two-sexed humanity was God's idea. Look at verse 27 and try to look at with first, uh, chapter 1 verse 27. Try to look at with fresh eyes. This is such a familiar passage that we end up dis dismissing what it says. Not in that we deny it, but we just don't notice it. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The whole human race is, is now and has always been and will be for the rest of time comprised of two differentiated and complementary sexes. That's how God designed. That's why in that first screen we didn't have 63 different symbols, as some have suggested. We had two, because that's how God created um, humanity. This perpetually binary system that is two, binary, just mean two, man and male and female, is not an accident or is not by the caprice of God. It's not that God all of a sudden said, I'm just going to go do that without having actually reasoned this through. It's God's design. It's God's good design for creation. Let me ask you this, and, and uh, it's a rhetorical question in the sense that I just want you to think about it for a second or two. What is at stake in God making us male and female? 
And what is at stake when we move away from that, when we decide that's not for us anymore? Just take a second to think about it. What is at stake when we turn our backs on God's design for humanity? I know we throw that often out there because we want to strengthen our point, but I truly think this is true of this point. What is at stake when we turn away from God's design for humanity of maleness and femaleness is the gospel itself. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that God created men and women, two different sexes, so that with a very purpose that he might paint a living picture of the differentiated and complementary union of Christ and his church. He, Paul, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, wasn't kind of trying to figure out what's the best way to illustrate the gospel. No, he says that marriage was created in the way it was created between a male and a female in order to demonstrate the gospel. And when you lose that, then you lose the most vivid way to demonstrate the gospel in everyday life. So any move to abolish all distinctions between men and women is a move, whether intentionally or not, I don't think people think these things through, is a move to tear down the building blocks of redemption itself. So we have to keep in mind that men and women are not interchangeable. And we've had a lot of stuff said in our culture trying to convince people of that. But when it comes to everyday practice, it becomes obvious that that's not the case. Men and women are not interchangeable. The man and the woman, then the woman, in marriage especially, but in the rest of life as well, complement each other. Meaning they are supposed to function according to a divine fit, fittedness. They fit together. Uh, I like math. I don't know if you guys notice that, but I'm, I, I like numbers. Numbers speak to me. Numbers, numbers are simple. Numbers are straightforward. Numbers, I think that's why Amy likes math too, Amy Hunter. Numbers are black and white. I like that, right? Do you know, what's a complementary angle in math? Two angles that add up to 90 degrees. Exactly. (laughs) Two angles that add up to 90 degrees. Each one by itself is not 90. Each one by itself is not a... What, how do you call a 90 degree angle? Right angle. A right angle. So each, we, that one people knew. That's good. Uh, each one by itself is not a right angle, but when you add it, there's a comp, they complement each other and they become a right angle. So we need to keep that in mind. There's a fittedness in how God designed maleness and femaleness, and this is in keeping with the ordering of the entire cosmos, the entire creation surrounds that. So, a good way to start then is in Genesis 1 through 3. And once you see that even before the fall, so you have creation chapter 1, creation chapter 2, then the fall dominates chapter 3. The entire chapter 3 of Genesis is about the fall of humanity into sin. But even before the fall, when everything was morally perfect, there was one thing which, if left undone, would not have been good, and that was leaving man alone. Are you with me so far? There's one thing that God says in those two first perfect chapters of the Bible. That's, that God says, if, if, we do, if, I, if we don't do that, we as in the Trinity don't do that, then there's going to be an issue. It's not going to be as good as, it's not going to be perfect. So, 
that's the issue, leaving man alone. And that's what Genesis 2 tells us as it zooms in on Genesis 1.27. So we read Genesis 1.27. And then the creation account continues to the end of Genesis 1. And when we come to Genesis 2 verse 5, what is happening there is that God is clicking on Genesis 1.27 and drilling down, expanding that. So then the chapter, chapter 2, verses 5 through the end of the chapter is a description of what God is doing in 127 there. And when he does that, we see that he did the thing that corrected the not good that was going to happen if man was left alone. So we see that male and female come, being male and female come from the very beginning. Have you ever stopped to think that God spent only two chapters in the whole Bible specifically talking about creation? Now, he addresses creation in the Psalms. You can see that in Psalm 104, Psalm 139. He addresses creation in the prophets in different places. But specifically, the, where he directs his effort to address creation is in Genesis 1 and 2. And that's it. These are the two chapters. And he spends most of that talking about the creation of men. Chapter 1 is creation of everything else. However many billion stars, however many million galaxies, however many bacteria, whatever, is in chapter 1. And then humanity takes the entirety of chapter 2. And as we read these chapters, if, if we are to think rightly, and if we are to feel rightly, and if we are to embrace rightly what it means to be male and female, we need to appreciate that God doesn't give arbitrary rules for men and women to follow. It's not that he come up with a bunch of arbitrary rules in chapters 1 and 2 and follow them. He gives us a bunch of principles in here that's going to be helpful for us. So let's make 15 observations from chapters 1 through 3. And uh, it may be uh, rapid fire, it may be not. We'll see how it goes because we will be done today with this lesson. That's, that's the thing of team teaching. You have to be done when... Uh, you're supposed to be done. So let's take a look at 15 lessons of, of, of principles, 15 observations from Genesis 1 through 3. I'll put them on the screen. I'll also post them later on on our uh, blog so that if you don't, well, you don't have to feel like you have to uh, be writing them down all the way through. Okay. The first observation is this. The man and the woman were both created in the image of God. Obvious, but there's lots of implications from that. And again, in, in verse 27 of chapter 1, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And as image bearers, not to mention co-heirs of the grace of God, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, men and women possess equal worth and dignity. Men and women possess Equal worth and dignity. Eve was not lesser, a lesser creature than Adam, and Adam was not a greater creature than Eve. She was not inferior, an inferior being in any sense of the word. What I'm going to say next actually might uh, rub you wrong, but I want you to think about it. Okay? Although God has revealed himself in masculine language, such as father, king, Husband, God is neither male nor female. Have you ever thought of that in those terms? Remember what our catechism says? That God is what? 
spirit. To be faithful to God's revelation of himself, we should always speak of God only in, in, the, in the masculine terms as given us, because that's how he refers to himself. But to call God Father is not the same as saying God is a man. Though he became a man in the incarnation, added a human nature to himself to the Son in the incarnation. Maleness, therefore, is not a higher order of being than femaleness. It's important to think about. There's nothing intrinsic to maleness that makes it a higher order of existence than femaleness. Both men and women were made to represent God in the world. There will be six on this screen, six observations. At the end of the six, I'll ask if there's any questions about all six, okay? That way you know where we're going here. Uh, observation number two, man has both singularity and plurality. Okay, what do I mean by that? Again, do you notice what it says in verse 27 of chapter 1? God said, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. And then he says, male and female, he created them. That's a plurality there. Humanity can be named singularly as Adam, which is man, not woman. But humanity is at the same time male and female. And the way the creation account spells out sexual differences is so obvious that we can miss its importance. The one identity marker emphasized at the beginning is maleness and femaleness. That's the one identity marker that's emphasized here in creation. Maleness and femaleness. Not some other group, not some transition from one to the other, but maleness and Femaleness. Three, the man and the woman were given joint rule over creation. Look at verse 28 of chapter 1. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, again, plural, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the air, of the sea, the fish of the air, that would be interesting. Uh, the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Together, they were to fill the earth and subdue it, which means that unless you have male and female, this command cannot be fulfilled. God blessed them, and God told them to have dominion over every living thing. For Within this joint rule, the man and the woman were given different tasks and created in different realms. So you have the, a joint rule, a joint directive given, or exercise dominion over the world. There's not just the man, but the woman is supposed to exercise dominion over the world. But in that, in that directive, they are going to function in different ways. A man is going to function as a man, and a woman is going to function as a woman. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 15. And I, this is something I had never thought about till this week. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Have you ever thought about the fact that Adam was not created in the garden? You're smarter than I. I've never, I've never noticed that as I read this passage over and over again. Adam was created outside of the garden and charged with cultivating it and protecting it. 
a protection under which the woman was meant to flourish. Eve was created within the garden after Adam was brought into the garden, suggesting a specialship to the inner world of the garden. So the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth applies to both sexes, but to use another mathematical expression, asymmetrically. They have different jobs in that commission. And the man is generally endowed with greater biological strength. Isn't that the whole debate with transgender athletes? Nobody wants to acknowledge differences, and yet there are major differences. This is generally true. It doesn't mean that every man is stronger than every woman, but generally speaking, that's the case. And we see that clearly. You can deny it to the blue in the faith, but then you see it clearly when it comes to the issue of athletics, where there is a visible, clear difference there. So the man endowed, generally endowed with a greater biological strength is fitted especially for tilling the soil and taming the garden while the woman possessing within her the capacity, of, uh, the capacity to cultivate new life is fitted especially for filling the earth and tending to the communal aspects of the garden. Five. We're getting to close to six where questions uh, are entertaining questions. Five. Man was given the priest-like task of maintaining the holiness of the garden. To the man alone, God gave the command central to the covenant of creation. Look at uh, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 again. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall, not, you shall surely die. Who is not around yet? Eve is not around yet. So it's to the man that God gave that command, even though then the man shared that with the woman, because the woman is aware of that in chapter 3. So in working and keeping the garden, the man was responsible for establishing God's command on the earth and guarding God's moral boundaries. It was given to him, do not eat of this fruit, eat of everything else. These are the boundaries that you're going to follow. You are going to be the one that enforces the boundaries that God has given to the world. Man's obedience to this task would mean blessing, while his disobedience would mean death. Six, man was created before the woman. It didn't have to be this in this word. Have you ever thought of that? that? God did not have to do it this way. He could have created both at the same time. He could have created Eve first and man second. He could, there's a, a, several different ways that this could have gone, but yet God did this way. And this is meaningful. This is not by accident. God does nothing by accident. And Paul then grabs hold of that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he grounded his prohibition against women teaching and preaching and exercise authority over the whole church based on this creation order. In 1 Timothy 2, 12-13, Paul says, 
And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. People tried to make this a cultural thing. It was how things were in the first century. That's why Paul, Paul is just a man of his time. And that's why it's this way. But was Paul thinking that way? Where does he ground the reasoning for his command? Is in creation, not in culture. Creation is true for every culture, for every time, and for anywhere in the world. And that's why he grounds there to say, look, I'm not just saying something that's true in the first century and later on can change. I'm, I'm saying something that's true for all eternity because that's how God designed things to go. So the order matters because it indicates Adam's position in the creation narrative as priest and protector and Eve's position as coming under the man's protection made from his side and for his support. All right, I told you after six to have questions. Any questions? There's right. another passage that says that the woman was deceived. It's the same passage. It's, oh. it's, it's just earlier or later in the same discussion. All right, any other questions? But it's a good point. And, uh, and we're going to see, maybe today or not, uh, that... Um, the mass that we're in today wasn't because the woman was deceived and fell into sin. The mass we're in today is because Adam fell into sin. It was on his shoulders, the future of all humanity. And he failed in that, which is related to what you're saying there as well. Anything else? Amy. Amy. Um, so the whole, so um, this is just a general question because um, I don't understand because I'm not like a doctor or anything. What happens if somebody is Mm-hmm. The, um, I forgot what the term is, but what happened, I think, I can't remember the exact term either, but there is sometimes a, a person, a person is, is born with a confusion of biological sexes in, 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 in the person. And... Uh, so, but it's a, confu- a biological confusion of the sexes. There's no clear one way uh, or the other. And you're talking about less than 1% of the world population in that. So, so uh, let me start first by saying that no policy should be made based on less than 1% of, of cases. So those, that's what we call exceptions, right? You have things that are true, and they may have ex- Even in math, my beloved math, you're going to have exceptions uh, in there. Uh, so that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. Don't make policies or conclusions based on that, on the, the rare cases. That, in statistically, let me finish. Statistically, outliers are not considered, right? Because they don't represent the whole. Secondly, the, uh, the Bible teaches that every part of, of the human being is being corrupted by sin, including our genetic makeup. So you should expect that uh, because the sin, has, uh, even our DNA is being corrupted by sin, that it's going to Corruptions are going to show that what you describe is no difference than somebody being born without an arm or being born with Down syndrome. Or being born is it's a corruption of the genetic code that's not expected, right? So that's described as an exception. That's not how things usually work in the DNA. Thirdly, thirdly, uh, the, the, in, in each. Each case, you're going to have to identify by itself. It, uh, you, you can even do a genetic study 
and there will be a uh, dominant, uh, dominant sex or gender in that particular person and so on. And wisdom would dictate uh, what should be done and so on. So, so these are the three things that you need to keep in mind as you think of that very, very, very rare occurrence of somebody that has a, a confused biological uh, sex at conception birth. Would, right. it still, would it still be a sin if they just figured to just stay in the middle because they didn't know what to do? Well, that's where the wisdom is going to come. And there's no middle. Middle doesn't exist. It's, it's a made-up category. So wisdom is going to come in to figure out what's going on in each individual case. I don't think it can be a blanket statement. So how, can the, how can the middle not exist if someone is literally born with both? Because of the three things I already said. So think about those three things. Don't react just against it because you already had a preconceived idea of what you should believe. Think about these things. And then when you have time to think about it, then we can... Next week, you can, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Elder Anderson can answer all the thoughtful questions that you've had at that point. So, yeah. But at the end of the day, we're, we're, we have to base our opinions on the Word of God and our conclusions. It's a, it, we're not, we're, it's a dangerous place to be outside of the Scriptures. Any new questions, Andrew? Do you think it's fair when you've been talking about this category to appeal to when Jesus talks about he talks about eunuchs, and he talks yeah. about those who become eunuchs, but he also references natural-born eunuchs. Correct, yes. In that he, even Jesus is acknowledging that there are those who are born with the inability to reproduce, and that would be one of the byproducts. Right. Um, but he addresses them as male and female. He doesn't address them as a third category. As a third thing. Yes, that's, that's my... That would be a scripture that you can kind of go to to Right, Jesus is not unaware of these things. Yeah. God is not, oh man, now my system is, is messed up because this happened. That's not the case whatsoever. Yeah. And I believe uh, the condition is called Kleinfelder syndrome. It's when you... Yeah, but there, yeah, there, there, is a, there is a kind of popular name to it. Oh, okay. It's, it's a Greek origin popular name, I think. Um, huh? So, yeah. Um, all right, so we'll continue with observation number seven. The woman was given as a helper to the men. Look at verse uh, 18 of chapter 2. And the Lord God said, it, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. And then in verse 20, So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And that's not, this is the case till the woman is created. And in verse 22, we see that the evil is created for men, equal in worth, and it's just created for men, different in function. And it's important that we realize that being a helper carries no connections of diminished worth or status. God is often described as a helper of Israel. You can look at Exodus 18.4, Psalm 33.20, Psalm 146.5. All these speak of God being the helper. The very same word used to describe the woman here. Um, it was not good for a man to be alone because by himself he could not be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He could not fulfill the very command that God gave him by himself. 
You know, another man could have helped Adam till the soil. God could have given him a plow and a team of, of oxen to, to uh, plow the earth. That, that would do that. Uh, he could have given a fraternity of manly friends that would be enjoy, enjoyable to have. But none of these things would have given a helper fit for the crucial task of producing and rearing children, which is central to the creation ordinance. If mankind is to have dominion on the earth, there must be a man to work the garden, a woman to be his helpmate. That's how God designed it. Uh, Eight, the man was given the responsibility for naming every living creature. Look again in verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam so to see what he would call him them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to, to him. It is telling that Adam alone was given the exos- uh, this exercise of dominion, that is, the naming of everything. There is, there is a power, there is a, an authority that comes in naming uh, something. Um, and that he was able to fulfill this respons- responsibility prior to the creation of Eve. And it's interesting that twice Adam named Eve. Uh, as he named him as woman, he named her as woman, and then later on in chapter three, he named her as Eve. There, which also shows his leadership in this matter. Number nine: the man and the woman were created in different ways. Have you ever thought about that? It's a given too, but we don't think about it. How was the man created? Out of the dust of the earth. How was the woman created? Out of the rib of the man. So the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth, while the Lord God built the woman from the rib he had taken from the man. So not surprisingly, the man is tasked with tending to the health and vitality of the ground from which he came, while the woman is tasked with helping the man from whom she came. You can see that connection there. Ten, the names man and woman suggest interdependence. Look at verse 23. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because uh, she was taken out of man. We see the interconnection between the actual words, even in the English language. Have you ever heard Pastor Lima's explanation of of, uh, Adam's naming of the woman? she, She comes down, yeah. And she sees that, whoa, man, and that became the woman uh, uh, there. But the English language actually uh, reflects the Hebrew language because a man in Hebrew is ish, and a woman, the male in Hebrew is ish, female is isha, which actually means to the man. It it, it indicates the um, purpose of creation there. Eleven, not... Not, uh, not sure what to do with this one, but it's true. It's there. I'm not, I'm not sure what all the implications will be. But in, uh, in marriage, the man leaves his family and holds fast to his wife. It doesn't say anything about the wife, the woman leaving her family. It just says the man leaves his family. Look at verse 24. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Uh, De Young has a bunch of conclusions for that. I could not see the same way he did. But it's true that this is one of the observations that we come up with in um, the first three chapters. Any questions about this screen? Yes, Doug. Yes. As long as you can rise at the end and put a question mark and you're good to go. <laughs> Lift at the end. Okay. Um, Ray Ortland says that uh, God made Adam and then he looked around and made Eve because he thought that man needed adult supervision. There we go. That, that makes all sense. Man needed adult supervision. So Adam, God made Eve since there was nobody else to keep uh, man accountable there. Though uh, it's meant as a joke, right? But there's truth in that. Uh, <laughs> he thinks so. That was meant as a joke. But there's truth that we all need accountability. Even in a perfect state, even before the fall, accountability was needed. And that's why, one of the reasons why God created uh, men and women. All right, 12. The man, or the two, came from one flesh and became one flesh. Again, look at verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Men and women are made of the same stuff and meant for each other, not so that one dissolves into the other, but that the two become one. Remember the, comp- the complementary angle? None of them are 90, but together they become something else, a greater one there. Marriage must be and can only be between a man and a woman because marriage is not the union of two persons, but the union of a complementary pair. And I'm trying really hard to say complementary instead of complementary so you don't think that's free stuff coming um, your way. <laughs> Does it make sense? It's not, a marriage is not just two, any two people getting together, but it's the reunion of a complementary pair. In the man and the woman. 13, Adam is reckoned as the head and representative of the couple. Adam is the one given the initial command regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, we saw in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2 that that is given to Adam ahead of time. And whatever was given, that command was given to Adam was binding on Eve as well. Eve didn't get to choose well, I don't know if I'm going to follow that. Well, yeah, you are, because your head, the representative before God, has already acknowledged that. And notice that in chapter 3, even though Eve is tempted by the serpent, commits the initial crime, Adam is the one that's first addressed. You see that in chapter 3, verse 9. He doesn't, God doesn't talk first to the woman, he talks first to the man and calls the man accountable for it. And... Romans 5 makes it indisputably clear that Adam represented both of them. Because Romans 5 says that Adam represented every last human to ever live, where it says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. I've never heard any feminist wanting to claim that responsibility. That's not something that seems to be... Uh, the case. Everybody seems okay with white males being the guilty ones for everything that's ever happened to humanity. You know, the, the, nobody wants to share in that blame. 
But it's clear that Adam is representative of, of the people when Paul says, just as through one man sin into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because of all sin. 14. The man and the woman experience the curse in different ways, each in their fundamental areas of responsibility. Eve, who was deceived into sin, did so, did so acting independently of the man. While Adam abandoned his responsibilities as a leader by standing idle by, while Eve sinned and followed her into it. If you read Genesis 3, 1 through 6, you get this idea that while Satan is deceiving Eve, while Eve is choosing to act independently from Adam, Adam is standing right there with Eve. Because the way the narrative continues, Adam just comes in as being right there. Adam says that Eve ate and gave to Adam, which implies that Adam was right there as well. Adam then, what does he do? When he hides from God, then when God confronts him in chapter 3, verse 12, what, is that, what does he do? He blames God for the woman he gave him. And that becomes the pattern of sinful people, to blame God for the way things are. In the end, both are punished for their disobedience. For man, his unique domain, working the ground, is cursed. We see that in chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. For the woman, her unique domain, childbearing, will bear the effects of the curse. Uh, how, uh, I don't know if before the fall, there was no pain in delivering a baby. Uh, but we do know, well, we as you women know, there's a lot of pain in delivering a baby after uh, the fall. Okay, lastly, the relational wholeness between the man and the woman was ruptured by the curse. We observe that in chapter 3. That when they fell, their relationship was soured, was, was um, broken there. Uh, the woman, tainted by sin, desires to have mastery over her husband. That's what it means that your desire would be for your husband. That she would desire to have the office, the function of man. And the, the man is going to be an overbearing tyrant generally speaking, in relationships. Any questions about this? Andrew? Katie hey, asked me early on when you were saying... Are you following First Timothy 2? So that uh, she's... Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. <laughs> when you were saying complimentary, she asked me what word you were saying. Yeah. And I said complimentary. She's like, why does he say it that way? I said, because he's Brazilian. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, that's a safe assumption, though. That's generally the case. But, but you're intentionally... Intentionally, because that's intentionally done in a lot of the discussions regarding what we're talking about. But it is the same word. It's the same word. Yeah. It's just one conveys one... I, no, it it uh, denotes or connotes. Denotes one particular meaning. The other one <coughs> denotes a, 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 another meaning. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense? Yeah. The way, so, yeah. So, so, yeah, it was on purpose as a reflection of what I've seen done. Though the Brazilian thing is a safe assumption anytime <laughs> as well. Any other? Yes, Tanya. Um, you said the domain of first in different ways. Mm-hmm. And you said the domain of women were childbearing. So the, 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 uh, when, when God spoke to Adam, he says, you go till the land, you go do this mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And... Um, when it says that you're going to exercise dominion, man, you're going to till the earth, the land. And when it talks to the women, it talks about multiplying. So it seems like there's a primary domain there of, of, of family in the women demonstrated in the act of childbearing. 
And that's the one area where the curse reflects, at least explicitly, in, in there. Right? I was just wondering, um, what, what happens if um, women don't get married, they don't have kids? Right, so it, it's not every woman, it's woman. Yeah, yeah. Eve is woman, <laughs> like every woman falls. Um, yeah, yeah. The, and, and Adam is this man, right? Doesn't mean that all these things have to happen to every woman, but that's the general design for womanhood and manhood. Okay, Eli, you have the last question. Maybe you can tell me, ask me between uh, church and service. That way, we, we can answer you. Okay, does that make sense? All right. So uh, next week, uh, Nick is going to pick up, and he has. It's going to be very simple. He's just going to go through the entire Old Testament, show the pattern of how this, what we saw today, is reflecting the rest of the Old Testament. But because that wasn't enough, he's also going to look at the, the Gospels to see how that pattern continues and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are you're a God, a clear a communicator. Father, we uh, are the ones that muddle things. We pray that you help us to be willing to follow the clear teaching of your word. We pray that we would rejoice in the very way that you created all humanity and that we would rejoice in the purpose that you gave to male and female and how that reflects the love of Christ for His church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.